0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited to welcome Robin Wigglesworth today to Salt Talks. Uh, Robin is the Financial Times global finance correspondent, and most recently the author of Trillions, which is a book on the past, present, and future of passive index investing, which has obviously uh, taken over Wall Street in a lot of ways. Uh, Most recently as well, Robin was named the editor of Financial Times Alphaville, Uh, which we're very excited to see his contributions there to a a great community of of writers. Uh, Robin currently lives in Oslo, Norway, uh, but covers macroeconomics, finance, investing, and markets internationally for the FT. And obviously, Norway sits in a very interesting place uh, geopolitically right now, given everything that's going on with Russia and Ukraine. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony's also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony to begin the interview.
1: Well, Robin, John, thank you, Robin. Thanks for joining us. I got to start out with Norway because my wife is a quarter Norwegian. So, are you Norwegian or what the hell are you doing in Oslo, Norway?
2: <laughs> That's a good question, uh, especially with a last name like Wigglesworth. It doesn't yep. sound very Nordic. It sounds more yep. like a Harry Potter character. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm half Norwegian. I grew up here in Oslo, so my right, father well, met my mother and that. ended up here. Yeah,
1: see that the Norwegians can be stubborn in the in the cold weather, but not necessarily in the hot weather, which is why I got to get my wife down of the Bahamas more often than not. Uh, yeah. Go to let, let's go to your background. You started at the London School of Economics. How did you end up becoming a golf correspondent in the UAE and eventually a global finance correspondent? Tell us about your career in journalism.
2: Well, the journalism side was kind of a little bit haphazard, but I'd studied a bit of journalism and history. And then I actually decided I didn't want to be a journalist. And I thought about going into the Norwegian Foreign Office. Uh, But whilst I was doing my master's at the LSE, I saw an ad for a financial journalist job covering primarily Islamic finance in the Gulf. And I thought, well, that sounds amazingly interesting. I was studying political Islam at the time. It was after 9-11, right? It was just a really fascinating time. And, you know, Dubai is probably the least middle Easterny part of the Middle East, but I thought it'd be interesting. So I ended up doing that. And literally the day after I landed, I was interviewing some local sheikh about Islamic reinsurance, which is as incredibly weird as it sounds. And I just absolutely loved it. I just thought finance and economics was just fascinating. I knew nothing about it, but I was getting paid to talk to smart, interesting people uh, and learning about stuff and I had to write about it to actually get paid. But, you know, I like learning about stuff, figuring things out. And that basically took me via some weird details, like I was briefly a war correspondent in Benghazi uh, to being kind of covering global finance for the FT.
1: All right. So you published this great book, okay? It's called Trillions, How a Band of Wall Street Renegades Invented the Index Fund. Um, I want to step back for a second. I want to understand, of course, why you got yourself interested in that. But I want to step back 30 years ago, okay, to The Random Walk on Wall Street, written by Burton Malkiel, uh, where he basically posited in the book that you could be a monkey throwing darts at a wall and you can probably outperform most portfolio managers. Therefore, the right way to go is indexing. Uh, take us from that book to your renegades into your book, which is a great narrative, by the way.
2: Thanks, thanks. No, I mean, he popularized this term. So you didn't invent it. The the blindfolded monkeys was actually invented by like a Chicago uh, professor called Jim Laurie. Uh He was the first guy to really come up with like the best first database of U.S. stock market returns, because in the 60s, people literally didn't know what the U.S. stock market returned in the long run. I mean, it sounds crazy today, but essentially he got a bunch of money from Merrill and studied this for several years using computers to crunch all the data and came up with that. And, And he joked that actually, weirdly, it seemed that portfolio managers on average did worse than the market. But you didn't actually know that until he published the numbers in 64. Uh, And Burt was one of the first people that, you know, went from the practical world of finance to actually studying economics and therefore being exposed to a lot of the incredibly groundbreaking financial academic work being done in the 60s and 70s. So people like Gene Farmer, who, you know, the father of efficient markets theory, Jim Laurie at the University of Chicago, Michael Jensen, Ari Markowitz on the West Coast, Bill Sharp. And he studied all these things and he decided, well, this is so fascinating that nobody in the real world or Main Street knew about this. So he wrote that book. And that did, he didn't, invent index funds had been around early on for pension plans. But that book uh, and some of his writing inspired Jack Bogle to start the first mutual fund for ordinary Americans in 76.
1: So, but the, the point being, is, it's true. Am I right or wrong? I mean, ultimately, the indexing is probably the best way to go. Buffett says that, even though Buffett has had a prolific uh, record as a stock picker. He said that. Many other people feel that way. Uh, Tell us about your findings about indexing in general, uh, and what's your advice to an investor?
2: Yeah, I mean, I always struggle with this because, frankly, people ask me for advice, but I'm a journalist. What do I know? Right? I talk to people a bajillion times smarter than me all the time, and even they struggle to beat the market or, or, or do this well. So my advice is, generally speaking, just be boring and go with index funds. Uh, and despite that, and having written a book about indexing, I'm not like a, a passive jihadist. I actually think markets are inefficient. I think there are people that can beat them over time. I just think they're far rarer than what we appreciate, and they tend to charge a lot of money for that skill. Like if... If Ken Griffin gave me like a kind of a, a cheap allocation to to Wellington, I'd jump to that every day of the week. But a lot of other people, I you know, I just don't think the value add is really there. And it's not just stocks, right? And yes, stocks definitely blindfolded monkeys can beat the average stock picker in the long run. But we're discovering more and more markets even the kind of the less efficient ones, even like bond markets, which always used to be the preserve of, you know, classic and bond kings like Bill Gross, even there, in the long run, the average active manager underperforms. Emerging markets, the same thing. Japanese equity is the same thing. You know, almost every market you look at in the long run, investing consistently and doing well is really, really hard and far harder than, frankly, most people realize
1: Throughout your book, you 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 write about and you discuss these significant figures uh, and the history. Okay, uh,
2: who who are the favorites that you wrote about? Who intrigued you the most? God, that's like picking my favorite child, really. Um, but uh, I, I have a soft spot for the first sort of character, uh, Louis Bachelier. So he was a French mathematician that was really the first person in the 19th century to show how the stock markets seemed to be fairly random, but also kind of tiptoe up towards what became efficient markets. And the reason why I love him is because he died in obscurity. Like he was a nobody. And, you know, it is incredible with these people that had kind of fascinating, colorful lives, he inherited like a wine business when he was just 19, when his parents both died very quickly. He was called up to you know, fight in the French army against the Prussians and the Germans. Um, he worked a part-time job at the Paris Stock Exchange. He just had a fascinating life, but died in obscurity. And it's only later on that he's now seen as the father of you know, this whole field of financial economics. Um, But beyond him, I mean, people like Jack Bogle, Mac McQuown, invented the first index fund, Nate Most, who invented the first ETF, were all just really, really fascinating. So I kind of loved getting to know all of them myself, frankly. Well, you know, one of the
1: things I took away from your book is the enormous impact the introduction or adding a company to the index has on the company and its stock market performance. Uh, Tell us about that, Robin.
2: Well, the best example of this, with some big caveats, is obviously Tesla. That, you know, when Tesla finally started actually making some money and became eligible for the S&P 500 index, you know, know, the share price started rising on expectation it would be included. And when it was included, it was announced it would be included, the stock price took another leap. So, you know, if you were long Tesla going into 2020 and stuck to it, you would have made out like a bandit. In reality, the index inclusion effect is—it's a little bit more complicated. Uh, you know, a lot of that effect is just because people think it has an effect, and the ergo, it therefore has one. It's what Soros called the reflexivity of markets—that if enough retail traders that love Tesla want another excuse to go long Tesla stock, and this is as good a reason as anything. Uh, It's better than like mining nickel on on Mars. So yeah, you go long, even longer Tesla stock on the index inclusion theory. In reality, various studies have shown that index inclusion has a huge effect or a small effect, but there are definitely hedge funds that take advantage of this and unambiguously. And where I kind of differ from a lot of indexing fans is that I think it's foolish to deny that indexing isn't having an impact on markets. When it's that big, the footprint has to be significant. I just don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, uh, as as some people in finance think.
1: I I, I was also struck by the uh, uh, the growth of this industry. I mean, my God! I mean, it's blossomed <laughs> into a, a you know, it's a thirty trillion dollar industry. Uh, low cost indexing is used by everybody. You know, retirement funds, endowments, uh, pensioners. Um. Is there any stop to this? I mean, what would, what would derail indexing, if anything?
2: Yes. And this is why I, I think, you know, why I wanted to write a book about it, because I think people still don't quite realize like how far this runaway train is, I think, inevitably going to go. I mean, when I started researching the book in 2018, we'd crossed 10 trillion in the public mutual uh, fund and ETF universe, 10 trillion. Uh, by 2019, when I started researching, we were around 13, 14 trillion. By you know, by the time I'd written it, it was like 15, 16 trillion. By the time the edits were done, it was 17 trillion. I think by the time the book came out in 2021, it was you know, close to 18, 19 trillion. Now probably we've crossed 20 trillion, and that's just that, like I said, that's just the public side. We know a lot of people do this in house, and I just don't see anything changing this. I think stuff can affect the industry, like maybe if there's like a a new era of trust busting that people get worried about the size of BlackRock and Vanguard, but fundamentally it's just such a superior product, a superior technology. That's kind of what the index fund really is. It's like the first disruptive fintech um, that I just can't see it slowing down. Uh, though it is going to evolve even as it keeps growing. And that, I think, is going to be interesting because there's going to be good ways it evolves and bad ways it's going to evolve.
1: So give us one good way that it evolves and give us one bad way.
2: Well, fundamentally, the, the asset management industry has felt under the cost for a long time. The average profit margins in that industry are incredible. It's a very profitable industry. I mean, this sounds like sour grapes from a journalist, right? We haven't had something called profit margin for 30 years. But, you know, the average US listed asset manager has profit margins greater than Google's. So I think there's a lot of profit that can come out of the industry and should come out of the industry and will come out of the industry. And that is to the direct benefit of investors around the world. And the fact is that even if you don't invest in index funds for whatever reason, you have benefited from it in the form of lower costs. The cost of investing around the world has pretty much never been lower. It's never been more democratized than it is today. And you know, a large part of that is index funds. So I, I think that is going to be interesting. I think it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. And essentially, the price of beta, pure market exposure to like global bonds, global stocks, is going to go to zero and stay there. Uh, and that is you know, a huge societal boom.
1: All right, so i want to ask you one last question i want to turn it over to uh john darcy um in the past you have been somewhat critical of uh crypto cryptocurrencies bitcoin the bitcoin movement what are your opinions now has anything changed in the ensuing years or are you still a a bear on the cryptocurrency markets and block and the blockchain
2: um, it's a good question because I, I do revisit this all the time. And fundamentally, for me, the litmus test has been when I see real life, actual, honest to God applications and companies doing something that does other than service the existing crypto ecosystem. I mean, I see an immense amount of innovation and incredible brains going into that industry. It is fascinating to watch. I mean sometimes I think it's a bit of a car crash watching but watching it but you know it is fascinating but so far I've yet to see something that is genuinely oh yes this solves a real world problem that cannot be solved in any other way because I think a lot of the stuff that when I do see potential applications we already have the solution like decentralized Uh, spreadsheets or ownership databases. This isn't beyond the ken of human ability to solve without necessary crypto. Uh, And I just think that for me, you know, maybe 10% of it is legitimate, maybe 20 or 30%, I don't know. But there is so much grift, so much just naked grift in that space that, you know, I just find there are so many other interesting things happening in the world of finance and economics that deserves and gets far less attention than crypto, which is huge now. But three trillion, we're still talking the size of the US high yield market. And frankly, like US junk bonds does not get the same attention that like Doge does. But on the flip side, I have to admit, like my one weakness is I do love a good me. And the crypto world has some absolutely sick memes. So I do love that. I'm a connoisseur of some of the memes.
1: All right. So you're a meme addict, but a crypto skeptic.
2: Yeah. yeah. That's, that's fair to say. All
1: right. Well, we'll, have to see the, we'll have to see what the future holds for you. You know, obviously, uh, you know, I started out as a crypto skeptic. I'm now mm-hmm. a crypto bull, but I'm always rechecking and revisiting my hypothesis and my uh, theories. Uh, I'll turn it over to John Dorsey. uh uh-huh. John, I'm giving you like a a C-minus on the uh, the room, though. I mean, the plant looks like it's about to die. And uh, you look like you're in a hall of mirrors. But other than that…
0: This yeah, is your company. I'm in our our yeah. corporate office yeah, here I mean, in Midtown I, I, Manhattan, so you got to talk to. I'm hitting him
1: hard, Wigglesworth, because he's going to now ask all these great questions, and you're going to say, <laughs> "Oh, John, what a great question!" So I have to take a few shots at him before he gets started.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's always a power move to diss somebody's yes. plant, background plant, before they do an amazing 100%, job. 100. Right? I do it course, all the time.
1: Of course, I wasn't in love with your room either, but I didn't really want to say anything to you. But go ahead, go ahead, John. No.
0: Yeah, you know, as they say in crypto, you got to seize the memes of production, uh, Robin. So you're on the right yeah. track with your your love of memes. So we'll, we'll get you a little more bullish on crypto in time. But I want to talk a little bit about uh, index funds. And, you know, given your location there in Norway and some of the conversation we were having before the show went live, I uh, would love to have some conversations about sort of geoeconomics. But as it relates to index funds, you know, one of the common critiques is that, while indexing has been good for investors and it's, you know, generally provided better returns than stock picking strategies and activist strategies and things like that is that, you know, it is passive in nature. And thus there's, there's a lack of accountability for individual companies that are, you know, heavily weighted within these index funds. And there's concerns about ESG and things like that. You've had groups like BlackRock and others make noise about becoming a little bit more uh, ESG conscious, uh, but but maybe there hasn't been as much action behind those words. Are you concerned that indexing is just going to swallow the entire, you know, investment ecosystem in such a way that uh, companies are not held particularly accountable for their corporate actions?
2: Uh, it's it's one of the, the the hottest themes at the moment. Like even the FTC's held um, hearings about this, and I I'm torn between. Fundamentally, I think the idea that there's ever been a golden era of corporate governance, which is kind of implicit in some of these arguments, is baloney. I just don't think that, frankly, active managers in the era before passive investors held companies to account. Like the the growth of the great American conglomerate and the death of the great American conglomerate, generally speaking, happened in the entire pre-passive era. So I just don't see that really having an impact. You can be an active owner and a passive investor, and you can be a passive owner and an active investor. Uh, So I don't really see it having that much of an impact. And you can arguably even say that maybe the passive error of greater concentration, when if you look at the shareholder list of every major US company now, pretty much, it's BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity, and a few others. You know, maybe that greater concentration and the kind of de facto permanent capital of passive funds might lead to a golden era of corporate accountability because they're passive, they're permanent owners, they're not going to go anywhere because as long as you're in the index, they can't sell. And with more concentration, they actually have the ability to affect change. Uh against that, it, and this and this is why I'm torn, is that I, I, I have to admit, I don't always feel entirely comfortable with the idea that, you know, BlackRock and Vanguard control so much of every single company today, but I think we need to think about where we're going in the next 20 years' time. It's right. not just inconceivable, but it's likely that in our lifetime, you know, a handful of asset management companies are going to control over 50% of the vote of every major listed US company and quite a lot around the world. And that makes me nervous.
0: Right. You yeah sort of as you alluded to, if there's high concentration of ownership of most of these companies within uh, a number of index fund providers from Vanguard to BlackRock to others, um, you know, and and their goal is essentially to maximize shareholder profits and and represent the shareholder. um, You know, does that lead to deleterious side effects related to consumers related to labor, uh, things that obviously are important to the United States and other countries around the world uh, do, you, do you run the risk of, in maximizing shareholder value, sacrificing you know, other things that that contribute to healthy societies?
2: Yeah, I mean, this is what you know, academics have called in their kind of their way of terming something really boringly the common ownership theory, the idea that if essentially, let's say, if you're Bank A. And you know, if you're the CEO of Bank A and you know that every other bank that you compete with is also owned by exactly the same shareholders in exactly the same proportion, will it have a chilling effect on your zeal to compete? Right, so uh, the common ownership theory is often mischaracterizes the idea that like Blackrock and Vanguard are hanging out together in like smoky rooms with corporate chieftains and saying, "Okay, you guys don't compete too much because that's gonna hurt returns for all of us, so just chill it on the competition uh, and that's that's beloding again uh, it's more that will it have some sort of dampening effect? will it in some respects kind of Kill off or ease the kind of the American the animal spirits that especially American capitalism is so known for and has made the U.S. the most dynamic economy on the planet. And I, I, I get the worries. I just think that as it stands, I'm not entirely convinced by you know there is actual hard data showing that this is might have had an effect on competition on airlines, for example, uh, for all sorts of boring practical common sense reasons, I'm unconvinced myself. And also I think it kind of ignores that CEOs and boards have all sorts of other incentives. So if I'm Jamie Dimon, yes, most of the shareholders in JP Morgan are also shareholders in Bank of America and so on. But you know, my comp is still tied to my share price, not Bank of America's share price. And I care a lot more about that. And also in practical terms, like, because BlackRock and Vanguard and State Street basically own a slice of the entire economy, they would be hurt by this. So imagine if, they are, if it is dampening competition in airlines. It keeps airline prices artificially high because of the lack of competition on the shareholder side. Well, that would hurt hotels. It would hurt, hurt retail. It would hurt a lot of other companies and areas. So I think I'm, I'm skeptical that it is a huge thing. I think that even if it is anything, there are offsetting factors. Um, but still, it, it's definitely one of those things that I think the FTC's already got the bit between the teeth. The European Commission is definitely looking at it. So it's a theme that is not going to go away, it's just going to grow in the coming few years, really.
0: Right. So switching gears a little bit, you're, you're sitting today in Oslo, Norway. Uh, it shares over 100 miles of border with Russia. Um, you know, I'm not going to ask you to comment as a military strategist or a <laughs> geopolitical commentator per se, but but more from a finance and economics perspective of we're obviously seeing a lot of distortions in the global economy as a result of sort of the walling off of Russia from everything. Um, you know, what, what are the effects that you're seeing that you think are going to become problematic in the future? And if you're an investor, whether it's an investor in an index fund or or uh, you know, a stock picker. What what should you be looking for on the horizon in terms of the the long term impacts of of this walling off of Russia?
2: Well, I mean, as a sort of um, if on the investing side, my advice is generally always, you know, I'm dumb, I know nothing, stick to the plan <laughs> and don't change it. Right. Uh, on the financial aspects, I think this is fascinating. Frankly, still hasn't really sunk in. Um, in the short term as this deal with like the commodity side. like Russia is not a systemically important country from a financial perspective, though it can have second or third round effects that are, are dangerous that we don't know about. I don't think there's going to be another LTCM if Russia defaults or anything like that, but like, there's stuff to watch there. But Russia is systemically important to the commodities markets. And I think we can see all sorts of... Uh, just obvious things like the price of everything that Russia produces or Ukraine produces has gone through the roof, but also the indirect effects of you know cutting Russia off from the global financial system, in like kind of derivative trades, increased margin calls. I mean, it's it's hurting a lot of the commodity trading companies that normally would be printing money in this kind of environment. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. The long term thing is uh, the U.S. has basically total dominion over the dollar-based financial system. That basically means global finance. Uh, You know, the U.S. is no longer the world's, you know, dominant economy. It is the biggest, but, you know, there are other big components there. But it still accounts for, I think, roughly half of all global trade is denominated or settled in dollars, and like two-thirds of all financial securities are denominated in dollars. So it just it is supreme in that world. Broadly speaking, the US has always been wary about like misusing it or doing anything that would dent the dollar's dominance or kind of imperil what the French used to moan was America's exorbitant privilege. Uh, but that has changed a little bit over the past, let's say, 10, 20 years. It's like with Iran, like financial sanctions against Iran because of its say, nuclear weapons program. Like North Korea has always basically been shut off. Venezuela. After basically there was a very let's say mildly disputed election result, and the the West decided that Maduro regime was illegitimate and recognised the opposition. But like, they're kind of these are niche issues, typically revolved around terrorist financing, like trying to disrupt terrorist financing after two thousand one. What the West did in reality, by West we read the US. Did against Russia after the invasion of Ukraine was the equivalent of weapons of financial mass destruction, and Russia is not like a tiny, irrelevant country, which frankly, like Venezuela, despite its oil, is in, in Iran, uh, that's a major power, and I think, I think the long term, the short term impacts we're kind of seeing. I think Russia is is hurt badly hurt as is, is some people might. Had hoped or feared because, frankly, they still make close to a billion dollars a day in oil and gas exports that, frankly, the US and Europe is all desperate for. Um, But what it means in the long run, like if I was sitting in Beijing or New Delhi or any country that might at some point have some foreign policy disagreement with the US and can see that the US can basically nuke your economy without sending in the cruise missiles or Marines, I think that has some interesting long-term implications.
0: You know, Anthony asked you about crypto earlier, and, and let's focus on the Bitcoin aspect of that. And, you know, I, I would share the view with you that there's maybe the percentages uh, we don't agree on in terms of the amount of grift versus real world application. But in my opinion, the, the U.S. really weaponizing the dollar in, in an even more significant way than it ever has against one of the larger you know, military powers and and countries in the world in Russia is an advertisement for what Bitcoin uh, and Bitcoin evangelists hope that Bitcoin becomes, which is a, the first real non-sovereign currency, I guess, aside from gold, you could consider um, in that regard, but non-sovereign currency backed by sort of an immutable uh, technology algorithm that, that says that supply will be constant. It's you know, re- immune to censorship, things like that. Do you think that there will be an acceleration potentially internationally of Adoption of digital assets like Bitcoin, in particular, that allow it to, you know, be less susceptible to the weaponization of the dollar, like we've seen in Russia.
2: Um, yes and no. It's is sort of the, the um, sort of the weak response there. Um, I generally speaking, yes, I would have expected Bitcoin to have a big moment after this, also because inflation is going gangbusters around the world, um, yeah. because. You know, but sometimes there's a difference between the reality and the perception. And the perception can create the reality. Like people perceive Bitcoin to benefit from this, it goes up, and therefore Bitcoin benefits from these things. I, I think for all sorts of reasons, you know, both the people that say that like oligarchs are using crypto to get around sanctions, or the pro-crypto people are saying crypto is helping poor Ukrainians. Um, I think both sides are kind of everybody's overstating their case here. I mean, the authorities, especially in a country like the US, have got pretty good blockchain, forensic, analytical people these days. So it's not so easy that like a Sechin or a Putin can just kind of use crypto to get around stuff. And it's also just very inefficient. Like if you want to help people in Ukraine, there are a million better, easier ways to do it. Um, but could it have a moment? I think so. I think it, I mean, so the one thing that I have changed my mind on, I used to generally think that crypto would, if not disappear, that would become like a niche thing like stamp collecting or something. Um, But now it's definitely here to stay per se, but like here to stay can mean, that's a big spectrum of outcomes. Um, And I'm not smart enough to know where in that spectrum it's going to end. I do think that despite, and the reason why I think this financial warfare issue is so interesting, I actually think the threats to the dollar are fast more than people think. Like a lot of people, including me over the years, have said, well, this means the death of the dollar. This is bad for the dollar. The dollar's in decline. And generally speaking, the dollar's value has kind of slid over time. But I kind of think the way that the world is set up now, that the US dominance is kind of baked in the cake. Like the Chinese don't have an alternative to the dollar. They can't dump their treasuries. So what, how are you going to put it on? <laughs> like New Zealand treasuries. The Australian dollar, there is no alternative that is that big, that liquid, and that legitimate. And for other countries, okay, so maybe you you worry about the U.S. occasionally. Sure. Do you feel safer putting your money in the Chinese renminbi, even right. if the Chinese actually let you put the money there? Or the so digital one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I think fundamentally, like it's not even a question of the dollar being the least dirty shirt in the closet. It's the only shirt in the closet, really, when it comes to big global capital flows. But the implications of that is right. that why would the U.S. do this more often? And then at some point, maybe it does start kind of sparking crypto adoption or a move to the dollar. But I think we're probably going to see more financial warfare rather than the less in the next 10, 20 years.
0: Right. And then as it relates to China and Russia, you know, there's a lot of smart people that have written about, you know, the end game here for China being potentially as, as being one of the, uh, or they are a major consumer already, but one of the uh, increasingly major consumers of Russian commodities as as the United States and the rest of Western Europe uh, tries to find alternatives to Russian oil and gas, and and uh, you know, the U.S. ramps up its oil production, and and uh, the West explores Western Europe explores other ways to generate energy. Uh, but do you see this driving Russia further into China's arms in a way that's damaging economically for the united states
2: yes i mean they there has been a rapprochement between china and russia and look i'm talking way out of my you know, <laughs> field here um but i can talk about some of the financial aspects yeah. i mean i know there has been a rapprochement and i struggle to see how this will not push russia into china's arms more forcefully uh even though you know really what was putin what what was this what putin wanted to turn kind of Russia into like a giant Chinese Blind satellite. state of China, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that might be the end, end result here. Uh, I think the interesting issue is that because, again, Beijing might want to help Russia, but it does believe in state sovereignty. This is like kind of a foundational thing in China where they think, don't tell us what to do inside our country. And I think even people in some you know, parts of China were probably not super thrilled about Russia invading Ukraine. And also, lots of Chinese banks still depend on access to the dollar-based financial system. And the Treasury's OFAC department has a well-known reputation for going pretty aggressive against anybody they think is helping sanctioned entities escape U.S. sanctions. I mean, they find what um, BNP Paribas, the biggest bank of one of America's biggest, oldest allies, Something about seven, eight billion dollars, uh, to just to scare it basically. Um, so I think quite a lot of Chinese entities will be wary of falling over themselves helping Russian entities get around sanctions. There will be workarounds, and you know, China still wants to consume a lot of the stuff that reduce, um, Russia produces. Um, so they'll, they'll be closer together, but it'll be. Interesting to see the dance around how this happens. Like, will more stuff get de- denominated in Remimbi or rubles and so on?
0: Right. And you know, you've spent time covering the Gulf. Anthony and I spend time in the Gulf, you know, for for business and commercial reasons, and uh, ha- have friends in the region. And there's been, you know, obviously a big shift in terms of the United States's relationship with. Uh, various Gulf countries in the transition between the Trump administration and the Biden administration, uh, you know, they're, they're answering Putin's phone calls and not answering Biden's phone calls. Uh, what impact do you think all this is going to have on the United States' relationship in the Gulf, if that's something you still
2: pay close attention to? I, I do a little bit. Um, I mean, it's not going to be great. but I think this has been something that's been kind of heading this way for a long time, and it transcends individual presidencies, sometimes even individual situations like Yemen or, or Ukraine and Russia. Uh, I don't think the Gulf will ever turn to Russia. Uh, the Gulf, they're pretty good at picking winners. Um, and I don't think, you know, in Russia, what an economy of the size, like half the size of Texas is, you know, it's got a big military, it's got nuclear weapons. But if if there's going to be a Gulf pivot, that will be towards China. Right. And frankly, for all sorts of geopolitical reasons, that makes more sense to me, really. Uh, but, you know, there, there are close link, commercial and financial and diplomatic links between America and, and large parts of the Gulf. So I don't think that's going to happen quickly or immediately. It's like, you know, bickering friends. Occasionally you have the half don't pick up their phone. But broadly speaking, <laughs> I think, you know, you have enough common interests that you can disagree agree to disagree on some areas and agree on others. Right, Um, But I think the pivot towards China, that that could happen. I think that will be interesting to watch.
0: So it's like you you have a disagreement with your girlfriend, you buy her flowers. In this case, uh, we're
2: allowing them to buy Patriot missiles. Same type of thing. (laughs) Exactly. At some point, they'll maybe let them have some nuclear plants or something like that. The UAE has been desperate for nuclear technology for ages and you know there are ways they can kiss and make up part of this is that that the war in Yemen is so incredibly brutal and nasty that for any U.S. administration to ignore that is just very difficult And I think as maybe the U.S. kind of maybe gets closer or, or lets Iran back into the international fold, that is something that the Gulf sees as an existential threat. I think wrongly, but, you know, the the Sunni-Shia split between the Sunni Gulf and the Shia-Iran, you know, put it very simply, that's that runs deep. And right, yeah. you can kind of see Iran is kind of historically a more natural ally of the U.S. than the Gulf in many respects.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's been one of the fascinating things here is just, how we've, uh, treated our relationships with co- companies or uh, countries that we've been treating as pariahs, you know, over the last decade or so, including Venezuela, where we were discussing potential regime change. And now we're asking them to help us with our, our, yeah. uh, you know, oil situation. So, and, and the same applies to Iran, obviously a complex situation with, with more moving parts, but, uh, well, Robin, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I'm going to let Anthony jump in, uh, with a final word before we let you go.
1: Well, listen, you wrote a, a brilliant book. Uh, we are thrilled to have you on Salt Talks. And maybe I'll come and visit you in Oslo at some point. Okay, you'll show me around. You take me some good restaurants.
2: Yeah. I know it's a few good restaurants, just come in the summer because the winters are grim. <laughs> it's like it's like a dark Chicago, basically, without the good pizza. So come in the summer. <laughs>
1: Are you talking about your hometown? Okay,
2: come on. I, I'm honest. I'm honest. Right, you know. All right. Well, it's it, all it's right. a good place to live, but bad pizza. Very bad well, pizza. Listen, you 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 wrote a great book, and we're very
1: happy to have you on Salt Talks. Thanks again, Rob.
2: No, thanks, Anthony, and thanks, John. Love being on it.
0: Thank you again, Robin, and thank you everybody for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Robin Wigglesworth, not a Harry Potter character, uh, now the editor of Financial Times, Alphaville, the great blog. So uh, definitely look forward to seeing what Robin does uh, with with that great section of the Financial Times. Uh, Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this SALT Talk or any of our previous SALT Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called SALT Tube. Uh, We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference. But we're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. And please spread the word about these Salt Talks. We love growing our community. Uh, But on behalf of Anthony and the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks
1: for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.